Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. I'd like to read to you um, from Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 9. It is written, There's a time to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. What many of you may find uncomfortable, what some of you may find disturbing, and what some of you may find harsh, is in fact imperative. It's imperative if we are truly captivated by biblical truth and the building and planting of Yahweh's word and thereby his kingdom within our very life. Demolition. Demolition is a bedraggled trade in which the one called to demolish is oft applauded by those who hold dear what he is called to destroy. Never ever having the vision to see what must be created in its place. For us to grasp hold of the vision of Yahuwah, we have to grasp hold of what he has called us to pull down and to destroy so that he can build up what he has already written in his word, which will be built. It's all about Yahuwah's vision for his kingdom. Not men's visions, but Yahuwah's vision for his kingdom. We can either misalign or we can align ourselves with what he has in his word in this generation. But we have to be committed enough to root out and expose the delusional visions of men's kingdoms. We have to be committed enough. And there aren't enough saints out there that are committed enough to do that. We have to be willing to expose the visions and the dreams of tyrants and liars. In the book of Yasha, in the 75th, chapter, it tells us about the sons of Joseph. The sons of Joseph, they thought that they had the power and they thought they had the understanding and they thought that they had the strength and that they believed that the time was at hand when they should leave Egypt. So the sons of Joseph in the 180th year of their captivity, they left Egypt 30 years before the ordained date which was written out in the covenants given to Abraham. They weren't prepared spiritually. They trusted in gold and silver Oh yeah, they went off to the coin place and they, they, they got their rice and beans and their gold and their silver and they were preparing to leave 
to leave Egypt and go into the promised land. That is what they were doing. And they believed that they were so mighty and that they were so strong that they could just buy with their mammon the things that they needed. And they came, and they came across the shepherds of Gath. And they tried to plunder the meat, tried to buy, tried to buy from them. And the shepherds of Gath went back to Gath and they told all the elders and they made war against the children of Joseph. And then they went and told the Philistines and they made war against the children of Joseph. And because they misread the word of Yahuwah, because they didn't listen and because they thought they could do it in their strength, not Yahuwah's time, but in their strength, the children of Joseph were smitten and destroyed out in the nations. Yet there were 10 that fled. 10 that were wise enough to realize their mistake and they fled. All that to say this. I want to call out your attention to yet another rotting arm of the Levitical hierarchy that's trying to ensnare the Hebrew roots and messianic adherents. It comes to us through an organization called Etz Benai Yosef. Etz Benai Yosef. Very fitting name in light of the book of Yasher in the 75th chapter, wouldn't you say? You see, this outfit is very misguided as it postulates itself as biblical restoration, when in actuality it peddles the visions and doctrines of demons conjured up in Basel, Switzerland in the late 19th century. But they do say on their website that they welcome others to contribute ideas and opinions and that they must learn to listen and not take offense if what others present isn't necessarily accepted. So I believe I'm going to bring forth my opinion, and it may not be necessarily accepted, but it is welcomed. Listen as I read to you their statement of belief encapsulating their writings and visions from their website, Etz Benai Yosef. Quote, for an, for an historical perspective, we are following the footsteps of our brother Judah under the leadership of such men as Theodore Herzl and David Ben-Gurion. The term Zionism was, caught, was coined in the late 19th century, these men, among many others, drove the movement that led to the establishment of the modern state of Israel. As Ephraimites, we are seeking to complete their work by bringing back the remainder of God's people who have been sown in the nations. Much can be learned by careful examination of the history of Zionism and work done by our brothers in Judah. So that's directly from their writings and visions. 
I call it false unity for unity's sake. Because we're told by the prophets, and we are given the pattern in the book of Yasha, in the 75th chapter, of what leaving early because you take it upon yourself, your own strength, and you misread the prophecies, what can happen? Zechariah tells us that if you leave too early, two-thirds in the state of Israel will be wiped out. Zechariah also very clearly tells us in the 10th chapter, it is not the work of men that will bring in those from the exile. It is the work and the mighty arm of Yahweh alone. It is not the work of men that we are to join ourselves with, but we are to awaken to the supernatural work of Yahweh. But you have to choose men and their visions, which is tyranny, or Yahweh and his vision, which is inspiration and enlightenment. So I want to examine five things today from Etz Benai Yosef's writings and visions and let you, the Kedoshim, the saints, turn the pages of history and more importantly, the pages of your scriptures right in front of you and see if what they're selling you is truth. Okay? It's an adventure as we delve into history and scripture and see what aligns and what misaligns. So I'm going to start off by re-examining some statements. Five statements. Number one, can we call the Ashkenazi Jews our brothers and should we be following in their footsteps? Number two, As believers, should we look to the leadership of Theodore Herzl and David Ben-Gurion? Number three, how does the Zionism of the 19th century compare with the Zionism in the Scripture? And number four, are we supposed to complete the work of secular Bolshevik Jews? And finally... Number five, what does a careful examination of the history of Zionism reveal? So we're taking their visions, we're taking their writings, and we're taking their statements, and we're turning them around and using them as questions, and we will delve into history and scripture and see if these things measure up. Honesty and integrity, exposing the darkness by shining the light. Number one, can we call the Ashkenazi Jews our brothers and should we be following in their footsteps? Ashkenazi Jews who believe the Babylonian Talmud supersedes the scripture in authority. That Babylonian Talmud that blasphemes such things and I'm deliberately right now not going to use Yahusha's true name here and quote directly from the Talmud. This is what it says in the Talmud. Jesus is in hell being boiled in hot excrement. Gittin 57a. 
Does that sound like your brothers? Jesus' mother was a whore who played the harlot with carpenters. Sabbath 104b. Christians are allied in hell, and Christianity is worse than incest. Aboda Zarah 17a. Just the Jews are humans, and non-Jews are no humans but cattle. Keteruth 6b. Does that sound like your brothers? Are we really to call them our brothers for unity's sake? I mean, am I cray-cray for believing that we shouldn't? For upsetting the apple cart? Well, in light of our master's words, who is my mother? Who is my brother's? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And who are the Ashkenazi anyway? DNA studies confirm that 97% of the people who call themselves Jews are not descendants of Abraham. In 2001, Dr. Ariella Oppenheim, and by the way, she's a Jew... A biologist at the Hebrew University published the first extensive study of DNA and the origin of the Jews. Her research found that virtually all the Jews came from Khazarian blood, the Khazars. The newest DNA research, science, from Dr. Iran Elehak, also a Jew and his associates at McCusick Nathan's Institute of Genetic Medicine, Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, has confirmed that the various groups of Jews in the world today do not share a common genetic origin, and their genome is largely Khazar. That's Johns Hopkins University. This is research by Jews into the ancestry and the supposing DNA that so many people like to go hunting for online. In the 1973 Jewish Encyclopedia documents that approximately 90% of the world's so-called Jews are, in fact, Khazars. That's from the Jewish Encyclopedia. N. Pollock, professor of medieval Jewish history at Tel Aviv University, says that the majority of Eastern European Jews are Khazar and Japhetic in origin. They're not Semitic. They trace their line back to Japheth, not Shem. Immigration statistics indicate approximately 90% of the world's so-called or self-styled Jews living in 42 countries of the world are emigrants of Eastern European Khazaria. Yahushua's words that Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles has truly come to pass, has it not? As confirmed by 97% of the so-called Jews in Israel are Gentiles because Ashkenaz was a son of Goma. He wasn't a son of Shem. Can we wake up and turn to Genesis chapter 10? 
and read our scriptures. But the charge is that you're being anti-Semitic. But that would mean that we're talking derogatorily about the sons of Shem, right? But I'm talking about the imposters that are in fact sons of Japheth. Anti-Japathetic. Do you see? Do you see the deception, brethren? Genesis chapter 10. Find out for yourself where Ashkenaz came from and the Ashkenazi. So we can see right here, so the answer to question one is quite simply and resounding, no. No. According to Jewish researchers looking into the DNA genome and the history of the world, no. The second question I had, as believers, should we look to the leadership of Theodore Herzl and David Ben-Gurion. Well, Theodore Herzl, the modern founder of Zionism, Theodore Herzl once said this, quote, it is essential that the sufferings of the Jews become worse. This will assist in the realization of our plans. I have an excellent idea. I shall induce anti-Semites to liquidate Jewish wealth. The anti-Semites will assist us thereby in that they will strengthen the persecution and oppression of the Jews. The anti-Semites shall be our best friends. Why? Because they didn't care about religious, genuine Yehuda. They were interested in political Zionism and were willing to sacrifice and slaughter the true Yehudim on the altar of Zionism. Herzl sacrificed religious Jews on the altar of Zionism and aided in the increase of suffering of religious Jews and assisted the secular nations in their persecution of Jews. He fanned the flames of anti-Semitism to bring about his hellish goal of Zionism. The the Israeli historian Benny Morris described how Herzl foresaw anti-Semitism and how it could be harnessed for the realization of his Zionism. He stated, Herzl regarded Zionism's triumph as inevitable. Not only because in Europe was there ever more unstable and untenable for Jews, but also because it was in Europe's interests to rid the Jews and be relieved of anti-Semitism. The European political establishment would eventually be persuaded to promote Zionism. Herzl recognized that anti-Semitism would be harnessed to his own Zionist purposes. Herzl said this, quote, The wealthy Jews rule the world. The fate of the governments lies in their hands. They start wars between countries. And when they wish, the governments make peace. When the wealthy Jews sing, the nations and their leaders dance along. And meanwhile, the Jews get richer. 
This was published by Herzl in a German newspaper. It was Herzl's Zionists, Bolsheviks, supporters who actually declared war on Germany and begun the Second World War. Most people don't realize Judea declared war on Germany as reported by the Daily Express, March 24th, 1934. How many of you were taught that Judea declared war on Germany in the Second World War? And now you understand why. Because that was the catalyst for what? The invention of the state of Israel came on the backs of the Second World War. And it was created by the Bolshevik Zionists under the direction of Herzl because anti-Semitism was the vehicle to create the state of Israel. I'm just reading to you from history, digging deep. Herzl wrote in his diary on page 68, an idea rose on my heart to bring on anti-Semitism and to obliterate Jewish wealth. How do you know people? By their fruit, right? Herzl wasn't a good father. He didn't have a close relationship with his children or anyone, except his mother. His son, Hans, committed suicide. His daughter, Paulina, died from drugs in those years. His daughter, Trudy, went out of her mind. His only grandchild jumped off the Washington Bridge suicide. Nothing is left from Herzl. His daughters were sent to learn by the Christians. Herzl was haughty, filthy, hated himself, and he hated his Jewishness. This was written by American reporter A.J. Powell. So again, I ask you, the Kedoshim, a question. And I ask this to the blind guides Etz Benai Yosef. As believers, should we look to the leadership of Theodore Herzl and David Ben Gurion? David Ben Gurion said this If I could save all the children of Germany by bringing them to England and only half to Israel, I would choose the second. What? David Ben-Gurion was willing to sacrifice millions of children on the altar of Melechian Zionism to found the state of Israel rather than save them from Germany. We must do everything to ensure they, the Palestinian refugees, never do return David Ben-Gurion in his diary, 18th of July, 1948. 
Let's look back to 70 of the common era and then work forward because I believe we'll find something very interesting because the political and religious establishment that want to enslave you and want you to go back to Israel, the state, prematurely and be a sacrifice on the Zionist altar... They want you to do that. Meanwhile, they want your gold and your silver. And they're going to say, hey, donate, 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 because this is going to support the temple and the return and the building of the third temple. All of this is based upon a misreading of the book of Ezekiel, which was part one of this series, and a misreading of the book of Zechariah. Just like the children of Joseph in Yasha, chapter 75, they rely upon mammon. They want your money, your gold and your silver. They're not interested in your soul. They want your mammon. What we've been led to believe that happened in 70 of the common era is called revisionist history. There has been no historical investigation, no historical research done on the forceful expulsion of the Jewish people by the Romans. The Romans never did deport entire populations. Can we understand that? They never did deport entire populations. What did they do? They brought in a prefect and governors to govern the people that they enslaved. They didn't deport people. Yes, they plundered their treasures, the Arch of Titus, but they left the people in the land under their what? Protection or prectorship, their prefects. In fact... 60 years after the destruction of the Second Temple, there was still a major Jewish uprising, wasn't there? It was called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. What does that tell you? That there were still many, many Jews left in the land. They hadn't been deported to Rome. They were there for the Jewish Bar Kokhba Revolt. 60 years after the destruction of the Temple. In fact, David Ben-Gurion was a historian ever before he was the Prime Minister of Israel. He was a historian. And this is what he wrote with Yitzhak Ben-Zavi, who was the future president of the State of Israel. Quote, listen to this. To argue after the conquest of Jerusalem by Titus and the failure of the Bar Kokhba revolt, Jews altogether ceased to cultivate the land of Israel is to demonstrate complete ignorance in the history and the contemporary literature of Israel. The Jewish farmer, like any other farmer, was not easily torn from his soil which had been watered by his sweat and the sweat of his forefathers. Despite the repression and suffering, the rural population remains unchanged. The Fehalin, the farmers, are descendants of the ancient Jews. And here's the paradigm shift. The ancient Jewish peasants converted to Islam 
for material reasons, to avoid paying what's called the Jahiz tax. The fact that they clung to the soil that they tilled shows that they remained loyal to their homeland. You see, initially, initially, the future prime minister and future president of the state of Israel were what's called integrationist Zionists. They were motivated to bring about an ethnocentric future. They believed the two populations had to be retained and that they could be reunited together. They believed an inhabitant of Hebron was closer in origin to the ancient Hebrews than the majority across the world that called themselves Ashkenazi Jews. It was only the massacre in Hebron and the widespread Arab revolt of 1936 to 1939 that took the wind out of the sails of integration back into the fold of Israel. From this moment on, the descendants of Jewish peasantry vanishes from the Jewish Zionist national consciousness. History is then revised after the Hebron massacre. The Fehelim, those Jewish farmers that never were deported, that their inheritance was the land. They stayed in poverty in the land until finally in the 7th and 8th century, They couldn't afford the jihad's tax that they were going to lose their land. These Jews that were never deported, they couldn't afford the Islamic jihad's tax. So they converted to Islam for the sake of the land so that they could afford to stay and farm the land. The future prime minister and the future president of Israel, they recognized that the inhabitants of the land were the true Jewish descendants that had never left. And they tried to bring them into the fold of Israel until the Hebron massacre and then they could no longer do it. So then the national narrative changed. The Fehalim, the farmers, became the what? The Palestinians that are rounded up and still enslaved. So let's get this right. So let's get this right. Those who say they are Jews are not, but are in fact the synagogue of Satan. Is that what the scripture says? Are we allowed to read our scriptures and quote that verse? Or is that politically incorrect? The prime minister and president of the state of Israel, they said it. I'm just quoting what they said before the Hebron massacre and history was revised. It makes me sick. What is black is white. What is up is down. The Fehalim are now revised to be Palestinians, to be Arabian immigrants who mysteriously came to Israel in the 19th century to an almost empty land as the Zionist economy of the 20th century developed 
it attracted more of these non-Jewish laborers. That's your modern revisionist history. You see, the Romans didn't forcibly deport the Jews from their homeland and there was no voluntary return to it. Only when the borders of the United States, Britain, Babylon and Europe were closed after the Second World War did the Khazars masquerading as the Jews return to mandatory Palestine. You see, this is so important because our whole political world rallies around this lie. And in fact, our beloved brethren in the Christian church have been misguided by Christian Zionism to believe this lie and have been fleeced of billions of dollars in doing so. How do I know? I used to be a Christian Zionist. Loved it. Loved it because I believed too. I lived in Israel when I was 18 years old. I've been to Israel many times. I loved it until I started to read the scriptures. And I started to go back before the Hebron massacre and read history. But when you start to do that, people come against you. And they start to call you names. Because to call you names, they can try and silence your voice. And most people don't have the backbone to keep on going. You see, that's the difference. I grew up in a society where if you push, I'll push back. And if you push again, I'll push back harder. And you can try and throw me away in boarding school and silence my voice. And I'll go to the library and read and I'll push back even more. You see... Yahweh has called his Kedoshim to be the voice. We are to be the voice in the wilderness, no matter what the cost is, even at your head becoming a platter dish. We are to be the voice in the wilderness. That is what this life is about. Not the status quo, but being that voice that cries out when the world is is peddling lies and tyranny. It's really about the Israel memory merchants. The settling Jewish masses weren't the direct descendants of the children of Israel. It's an anti-Semitic myth of the wandering Jew that Zionism harnessed for their own good measure, right? They took that anti-Semitic myth of the wandering Jew and now they're like, yes, we are the wandering Jew. And even Ben-Gurion uses it for his own political expediency. Do you see what they did? It's the anti-Semitic myth of the wandering Jew that was in turn encouraged by the Zionist lobby knowing this myth would provide moral legitimacy to the settlement of the exiled Jewish people nation in a land inhabited by others from time immemorial. Let's look at the fruit of a man who followed in Ben-Gurion's footsteps, because by their fruit you shall know them. Yitzhak Greenbaum, Zionist minister of the interior under Ben-Gurion, he said this, Concerning using communal money to save the Jews, now, he's talking about saving the Jews out of World War II Germany. 
No, and no, and no. Zionism comes first. That's the fruit of following David Ben-Gurion. No, we don't save people from Germany, leave them, because Zionism comes first, because what happens there is going to be the catalyst to thrust us into the land. Because then we'll have the sympathy of the world. And they will literally eat whatever we serve them up out of our hands. And there will be billions of dollars of recreations for generations. Billions and trillions of dollars worth. My third question. How does the Zionism of the 19th century compare to the Zionism of Scripture? It's a valid question, isn't it? Let's answer this question by seeing if the state of Israel qualifies as the Zion of Scripture or is it just the Zionism of a madman called Herzl? What is the birthright in Scripture? What is the birthright? The birthright in Scripture, and there's an organization by the state of Israel called what? What's it called? It's called birthright, right? But what is the birthright? Scripture tells us the birthright is the land. And where do you think this comes from? The Malkitzedic covenants of promise, Genesis, Bereshit, chapter 12, verse 1. Now Yahweh said to Avram, Get out of your country and from your mishpochah, your family, and from your abba's bayit, his, your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Then if you turn to Bereshit, Genesis 15, verse 18, in the same day, Yahuwah made a Brit, a covenant with Avram, saying, to your zirah, to your seed, have I given this land. To your seed have I given this land. It's really the connection of Israel and the Malkitzedic priesthood. Because Avraham entered into this land covenant 400 years prior to the establishment of the Levitical order. 400 years prior to the establishment of the Levitical order or priesthood. When Avraham offered up his tithe to Malkitzedek, it was under the Malkitzedek order of priesthood, was it not? The land covenant, listen, the land covenant of Israel was always administered under who? Malkitzedek. The land covenant of Israel was always administered under Malkitzedek, never under Levi. That's why under Melech Dawid, under King David, and the Levitical priesthood, greater Israel was never fulfilled, was it? Never, because the promise was given to Avraham. The promise was under the Malkitzedic covenant, and it can only be fulfilled by the administration of the Malkitzedic priesthood. Yahweh told Avraham that he would be the father of many nations, and Yaakov, Jacob, whose name is Israel, that from him would come a company of nations. 
You see, Judah has its place. Judah provided the king, Yahusha. And Joseph was the what? He had the Malkizedek royal garment upon him that his brothers were jealous of. He had the tunic of the priesthood given to him by his father and his brothers. They were jealous of that, were they not? You see, Judah provides the king, but Joseph provides the Zadik, the Malkit Zadik, the birthright and the kingdom. You see, we are living in the time of Malkitzedek, Joseph, are we not? The time of Joseph is at hand. Bereshit, Genesis, chapter 48, verse 15, it is written, Bless the lads, Ephraim Vechei Manasseh. Bless the lads, Ephraim and Manasseh. Let my name, whose name? Let my name, you mean the name of Israel, Jacob, Israel. Yes, that name belongs to who? The sons of Joseph. So so you're telling me that the name of Israel, it doesn't belong to Judah. No, the scripture says the name Israel, biblical Israel, is under the administration of Joseph's sons. Mm. So you have to watch out for the lies and the counterfeit. First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright, what's the birthright? The land, the land was given to the sons of Joseph. Does that tie in with what I just read in Genesis 48 verse 15? The son of Israel. So that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. Yet Judah acted, the Hebrew word here is gabar. It means insolently over his brothers. Judah acted insolently, the Hebrew word there is gabar, over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. Judah brings forth Moshiach Yahusha, yet the land can only be given to the house of Joseph, and the house of Joseph are the only ones that are entitled to call that land Israel. Oh, the Bible. That Bible sure does get in the way, doesn't it? Man. Man, that Bible sure does get in the way. The kingdom is is given to the ten tribes of Israel. It's never given to Judah. 1 Kings 11, verse 30. Melachim Aleph. 11.30, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Shlomo, Solomon, and I will give ten tribes to you, to Yerovam, to Jeroboam. I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand, out of Solomon's hand, 
and give it to you, ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart's desires and you shall be king over Israel. What does this tell you? Judah cannot, never will be able to build the kingdom of Yahweh. That Bible sure gets in the way, doesn't it? You see, you wonder why there's been all these books in the 20th century. What, what are some of those books? Eight things that happened before the coming of... Well, something in them. I mean, everyone's predicting timelines and prophecies, right? What are some of those big books in the 80s? They, right, and, you know, we've got all of these predictions and timelines. And now in the Hebrew Roots movement and the Messianic movement, calendar timelines... Oh, this is going to happen, and that is going to happen, and it's all based upon what? Well, the birth of Israel in 1948. It's all based upon a false premise. So therefore, their prophecies will continue to fail and fail and fail, and people's faith begins to diminish and diminish and diminish. Oh, yes, yes, yes. They said that last year. Oh, yes, yes, yes. They said that 10 years ago. Oh, yes, yes, yes. 40 years ago, we thought Jesus was going to return. Based upon what? the misreading and the false premise that biblical Israel was established in 1948 when really it was the conjuring of the doctrine of demons. So, biblical prophecy is going to begin to be fulfilled when what? When Judah sees the need to unite with Joseph, the Malkitzedek, and establish Israel. Then, when? Only then. You see, it's not the other way around. Legally, according to the Torah, you know that thing that everybody's you know, saying that, you know, well, that Torah to the tribes, you know, they're, they're not into the Torah. What? <laughs> wow, okay. You mean we rightly divide the Torah? Yeah, that very Torah that says what? According to the Torah, Judah can't own any land without the Malkitzedic administration of Joseph. That's what the Bible says. Judah has tried to seize the birthright, the land by force from Joseph. That's why Bible prophecy continues to fail time and time again. The state of Israel is really a confused nation pretending to be a wandering people race. The state of Israel denies the existence of the Israelite people whom they consider simply as the bridgehead to the Jewish people. The state of Israel is biological in origin with fragments of nationalized occult religion, as we saw by the quotations of their very text. The ancient Judean or modern Israeli who were or are citizens of political entities 
The Bible says nothing about either of these because Israel is not merely a political entity, is it? The Zionism of the Jews of the Israeli state is not the Zion of the millennial kingdom or the Zion of the former Israelite theocracy. The state of Israel is national. It's racial and compared internationally. Awakened eternal Israel is without nationality, but it is transnational and without national racial comparison. It's trans-tribal. Yeshayahu, chapter 10, verse 20, Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 20, it is written. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such has escaped of the house of Jacob. I am so sick and tired of people talking about the remnant of Judah. That's not what it says. The remnant isn't Judah. The scripture says the remnant is who? Israel. Yet I am ridiculed and people come against and call me all kinds of names when I come and just quote that scripture. Say, no, 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 the remnant is Israel. Oh, the us anti-Semitic. So now reading the scriptures is anti-Semitic. Especially that section in Giliana, Revelation, about the synagogue of Satan. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13. It talks of the remnant tithe. The remnant tithe is to be harvested to form the leadership of the end time Malchizedek priesthood under the overall leadership of Joseph, the Malchizedek, who is hidden in the nations. Judah can only be called Israel when? Judah can only be called Israel when the tribes are united as one under the Malchizedek-Joseph administration. When the kingdom split, did Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, did they call themselves Israel? They never attempted to call themselves Israel, did they? Why? Because they knew they couldn't, so they picked the name Judah after the most powerful of the three southern tribes. Joseph, the rightful Malchizedek, will always be persecuted by his brothers. They will want to throw him and discard him and not listen to her word, he says. That's the Malchizedek administration. But the rightful Malchizedek is Joseph, and he is going to be restored to rulership once he's purged of his Gentile pagan tendencies. And that's what Yahweh is doing with us, right? He is purging us of our Gentile pagan tendencies, and he's saying, join a priesthood, not a denomination. To be the theocratic governing tribe during the millennial under the Malchizedek order. You see, the vast majority of Jews today are not descendants of Abraham at all. They're not Jews, in other words. Most of them who call themselves Jews today are in fact Gentile converts to Judaism from Khazaria 
in the Arabian Peninsula. You see, many people don't realize because today they say, you know, many of the so-called Jews will say, well, don't, no proselytizing. We're not a proselytizing religion. Have you ever heard that? Oh, the Christians, they proselytize all the time. But Judaism, we don't proselytize. Well, that's only because you bowed to the anti-proselytizing laws of the third century of the Christians. But because before the third century, Judaism was a hugely proselytizing religion. It's only because the rabbis bowed to the laws of anti-proselytizing that the Christians invented in the third century that today they don't proselytize. But before the third century, the Jews and Judaism was the grandest of proselytizing religions. Under the Hasmonean dynasty, there was mass proselytizing and conversion all the way up to the fourth century when the rabbinical Jews bowed to the power of Christianity and its non-conversion laws. Where did the the Edomite people come from? Herod, he was an Edomite, right? They were proselytized by the Jews. Philo, the Jew, the Septuagint was the word for the proselyte, right? was written in Greek because the Jews were a proselytizing religion and a proselytizing people. Judaism and Hellenism, Philo the Jew, he didn't speak Hebrew, not Aramaic. He spoke Greek. Septuagint was for the proselyte. You see, the Khazarian kingdom was the last kingdom actually to be converted to Judaism in the 8th century. And this is beyond dispute, Turkic in origin. Think about the Yemenite Jews. Those of you who have heard of the Yemenite Jews, right? How did all the Arabians in Yemen get converted to Judaism if there was no proselytizing, right? They were proselytized in the Arabian Peninsula, It led to the astonishing conversion of the entire kingdom in the south, the Himerite kingdom, today known as Yemen. And then people will try and play the Sephardic Jew card. Well, I'm a Sephardic Jew. All they need is a Hispanic last name. And uh, next thing you know, Bob's your uncle. They're Sephardic Jews. Well, let's examine who, who, who really are the Sephardic Jews. They are primarily descendants of Arabs, Berbers, and Europeans that converted to Judaism in the 12th century. The Berbers, who again took part in the Arab conquests of Spain, were in fact Judaizers. You see, Yitzhak Baer and Ben Zion Dinur are historians at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and again they conclude there was no forced expulsion after the destruction of the second temple. Talmudic Judaism, the state of Israel, and Zionism, my friends, are in fact counterfeits of the true messianic faith and the true theocratic state that Moshiach is king of. You see, modern Zionism inspired the eventual creation of the counterfeit that we now have in our midst, the state of Israel which has a man as its secular prime minister. Whereas the only true Israel has Moshiach Yahusha as its king, right? There are so many believers that have been duped. 
simply been duped into supporting an anti-Yahusha counterfeit. They're supporting a state run by a racially driven clique who loathes Yahusha and they blaspheme the true Moshiach. It's so sad. You see, Etz Benai Yosef want you to believe that the existence of the Israeli state is proof that biblical prophecy is being fulfilled. That's what they want you to believe. Their adherents are prophesying timelines. They're prophesying calendars. They're prophesying the second coming. Ideas are all based upon what? The incorrect assumption that the state of Israel is biblical Israel and a misreading of the book of Ezekiel, which was part one of this teaching, which will affect your whole eschatology. You misread Ezekiel, And all of a sudden, you're going to end up with some Hebraic Christian Zionism theology that you've just carried over from the church with you. And then you Hebraic it up, and everybody goes along with it. And you do a little bit of gypsy dancing and wave flags, and people go along. Because they don't even look into the background of Davidic dancing. We've done a whole teaching on that. Gypsy dancing to destruction. I was genuinely asked by a beloved sister to look into Benai Etz Yosef. Because it was circulating around this congregation. So I did. And as I do with all things, I count the cost. But I always choose wherever it takes me. I will speak the truth. That's what I do. And that makes me like Marmite, as I say often. (laughs) But don't bring something up to me and not expect me to do my due diligence. Because I've earned the respect to stand up here amongst you all and teach because I believe that you trust that I will do that. And that's what I do. So that I can sleep at night And so that I can raise my family and ultimately stand before the king and know, you know, that's what they said. But when I read your scripture and then when I started to go back further and further, it wasn't quite so. So then I either shut my mouth and be a coward or I stand up and I speak the truth and it lies where it lies. I count the cost. You need to count the cost. Giliana, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the teaching overseer of the Israelite congregation in Smyrna, write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and is alive. I know your mitzvot and tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews and are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan, the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things that you shall suffer. See, Satan shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be faithful to death. And I will give you the keys and the crown of life. Zechariah chapter 8 verse 23. 
This says Yahuwah Sevot. In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all the languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the Sitziot of him that is a Yahudi, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that Elohim is with you. And the question I always ask is this. Should a returning non-Jew take hold of a Jew who hasn't experienced the promise of biblically ordained redemption? Or should you? Surely the Jew of Zechariah 8 verse 23 must be one who can lead others to redemption and not Torah study alone. Because Torah study alone is nothing more than Jewish Gnosticism, the seeking of knowledge. Remember the parable of the fig tree, and we'll finish up here. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 20. In Matichahu chapter 24, verse 32. You see, the Ashkenazi Khazars are trying to run the state of Israel. They're putting forth leaves, yet not producing the fruits of the kingdom, because the only way they can do that is by acknowledging the rightful heirs, the Fehalim, the Jewish farmers, the true Jewish farmers, who then will link themselves with the legal heir, Joseph. Many of the Fehalim, or so-called Palestinians, are really Jewish believers in Yahusha, the so-called Palestinian Christians. And they do not want you to link arms with them and inherit the land. You see, it's time for the Khazars to repent and to allow the real Judah to stand up and claim their land, receive Moshiach, and bear fruit. Doesn't this sound just so topsy-turvy? Doesn't it? Could it be more topsy-turvy? It's the biggest enslavement program of the 20th century that's still spewing its poison in the 21st century. Do you know how many Palestinian Christians love Yahusha and they're not Palestinians, they're the Jewish farmers? Do you know how many Palestinians are waking up to Hamas, waking up to the PLO, waking up to the horrors of Islam and accepting Yahusha as Messiah and being persecuted? That's not in the news because it's in their heart. Yet in the heart of the Khazars is that Jesus was boiled in hot excrement, that Jesus' mother was a whore and whored around with carpenters, It's deceitfully wicked above all things. And so misguided that believers are led into this trap. I see videos posted celebrating the death of Palestinians. I see believers posting these things on Facebook like it's good. When in reality, within the last couple of weeks, you just saw an IDF soldier execute a Palestinian that was lying on the ground, already injured, literally execute in front of the battalion.
We live in a very twisted world. What happened in 1948, going back to the parable of the fig tree, is the fig tree was manufactured. It's a genetic hybrid manufactured by Theodore Herzl. Oh, it may have brought forth what looked like leaves for the mainstream non-believers or the mainstream consumption Christianity. But to those of us that investigate through the word, we can see that it is about to be cut down if it continues to remain barren of fruit. In Luke chapter 19 verse 14 and Luke chapter 19 verse 28, if a country, listen, if a country and its citizens refuse to let Yahusha reign over them, then this is what our Messiah says. Those who don't want me to reign over them, slay them before me. Who's your king? Who's your Mashiach? This is sharper than a two-edged sword. And when you read it, it will pierce you to the very core. And you'll have to set your politics aside. You'll have to set your mammon aside. And you'll have to set your agenda aside. And you'll have to decide whether to stand on the word of Yahuwah or stand on the vain visions and tyranny of people like David Ben-Gurion, Theodore Herzl, and what is being put forth by this rotten tree of Etz Benai Yosef. Do we understand the words of Moshiach in relation to the citizens of the state of Israel today? And at this point, I'd like to conclude, because I believe we can safely answer questions four with a resounding no are we supposed to complete the work of secular Bolshevik Jews? No. And finally, the fifth question, what did our careful examination of history, the history of Zionism, reveal? Is Etzbenai Yosef actually pushing sacred history in place of historical truth. I don't like sacred history. You see, sacred history is idolatry. It's a shrine. And that is what this world pushes. Sacred history. Until somebody comes up with historical truth. D. Brown came up with historical truth and challenged the sacred history of the Native American history that was being taught in public schools in the 70s and came up that, with that book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. You see, that was historical truth that challenged sacred history. And this today is historical truth that is challenging the sacred history that is being put forth by these Hebraic, Messianic, and Christian Zionist organizations 
that ultimately puts you in bed with the Khazars, the synagogue of Satan. I believe that we truly have to make a decision because this is 2016, 2017, and in a political and religious climate that is exploding, you need to know where you stand. You need to know where you stand. I do not stand with sacred history. I stand with historical truth. It's Benai Yosef is pushing sacred history and its agenda is exposed and it collapses under the weight of this historical truth. Questions, comments? I'm so blessed that we have the discernment and the eyes to see. I pray that we have the ears to shamar here. We just have one comment uh, right now and it's just they're so glad that you're brave enough to talk about this issue, and it just gives them courage uh, to share with others. And they get the big picture, but it's harder for people to explain to others so far. Oh, sorry. Where does Matthew get all his info on history? I don't want to homeschool my kids with all the fake textbooks. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to update some books for you. I think we'll maybe even do a, um, that in the next week on the about page because that I do need to add some books up there, some great books, some great historical um, truth that will again challenge the sacred history. But like many that have gone before me that do speak historical truth, it is a hard path and it does, of course, put you in sometimes great predicament because those openings that the media would once have allowed you to attend, you no longer can attend. But that's okay, because we have been blessed here with an amazing department in the back. Thank you, brothers. Thank you for being able to reach the nations through this phenomenal equipment, live stream, computer website, that we are independent. We are, if you will, self-published. And we do not have to kowtow down to radio stations. We do not have to kowtow down to those that would try and have us come under their agenda. We are free and we are supported totally by the saints. We don't sell anything anymore. We literally give it all away. And I say this because, you know, if I had a 100 people that were sitting before me, How would you feel if I said, for this Bible study, I'm going to charge you $25,000? Would you be outraged? I would be outraged. Well, that is what is going on in the Hebrew Roots movement. Charging $25,000 for a 100 attendee Bible study. How can you sleep at night and in all integrity Teach the word of Yahuwah. I have no idea unless you are propagating lies and a political religious agenda. And that's the reality of it. And as we dig deeper and peel off those scabs, the pust is coming out. And people are contacting us all over the world, thankful and saying, I see it. I see it. It's finally 
finally being spoken of. And the shift happened in this ministry because of conviction of me and others and saying, let's just give it all away. Because Yahweh is using his people's generosity through their conviction of the tithe to do what they're convicted of in their life. And then it is what it is, right? And the success is phenomenal. And the freedom to self-publish truly is amazing. I give all glory to Yahuwah for what he's doing in his saints, for the stirring that he is doing with many of you across the nations. And I'd like to thank you all. We get letters, we get people giving through the mail, through the internet, all the time. And I want to thank you all sincerely from this ministry. Amen. Amen.